You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are here with a very special guest today, my friend, Sean Hanlon. He is the founder and CEO of Hanlon Investment Management. One of the things you'll hear today is Hanlon was doing such a good job taking care of their clients that advisors kept beating down their door saying, will you actually help manage money for my clients too? And you'll hear about that today. That led to the firm also founding an asset management platform for advisors to use for their clients. And we'll talk about that today. But the real strength that I've gotten to observe is that this is a firm that's run by an advisor that ultimately became an advisor for other advisors, but still takes care of clients every single day while guiding the firm's asset management offering for other advisors as well. So we're going to talk about all that today and much more. Sean, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks very much, Tommy. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for that great introduction. You really nailed it. You know, Sean, we're going to talk about some of the great work you've done for clients and then ultimately for other advisors as well. But before we jump into that, our listeners love to hear people's story. And so how did you get started in the wealth management industry? Yeah. So, Tommy, I'm a mechanical engineer by education. I was an engineer for two years, and uh, that's all it took for me to say uh, I wanted to go to Wall Street. And I love engineering. I love analysis and all that. But I like people more than things, and I wanted to work with people because, as you know, Tommy, the greatest calling in life that all of us experience is helping people, and that's the business we're in. So I went to Wall Street uh, back in 83. And where did you start? I was hired in what was at that time the prestigious Merrill Lynch training program. It was really known as the best training program on Wall Street. I trained up on Wall Street at One Liberty Plaza, and then they asked me, would you mind going to our Atlantic City, New Jersey office? And I grew up on the Jersey Shore. And I almost thinking to myself, is this a joke? Like, are they kidding me? They want to send me to work a block from the beach in Atlantic City? And I said, sure. And so that's what dispatched me down to Southern New Jersey in the Atlantic City Merrill Lynch office. And I love it. You know, I've gotten to hear you speak a few times, Sean. And when you talk about your time at Merrill Lynch, you said, you know, I started out cold calling and actually enjoyed it. Yeah. And, you know, so many people can't stand cold calling. But, you know, for me, I guess it's the same experience, guys who go fishing. I'm not a fisherman. I'm more of a golfer or even guys that go golfing. You know, and you're standing on the tee. You don't know if you're going to birdie the hole, par the hole, bogey the hole. And the same thing with cold calling. You didn't know what you were going to run into, but it was fun. Again, I liked meeting people and learning people's stories. And of course, Many of them didn't want to talk to you, and I understood that, and it was time to move on to the next call. But I did enjoy it, believe it or not, and that was a big part of my early success. That's fantastic. And, you know, I think, as I understand it, you were having such success on the advisory side that ultimately another firm came after you and said, gosh, we need you to come open up an entire branch for us. Yeah, that's true. So after being with Merrill for three years, myself and three others were the nucleus for the formation of another office just outside Atlantic City for Payne Weber. So that was fun because I learned that you, you know, about change, right? Every All of your listeners and you and I both know that change is a critical element in life, and hopefully change for the better at all times. 
So I went through change, leaving Merrill, going to another wirehouse. In this case, it was Payne Weber. And change is not easy, as we all know, but ultimately change wound up being, I think, a good thing for me. And, you know, we have a lot of financial advisors that actually listen into our show because we feature a lot of them. And I know some of them are thinking about making a change from the position they're currently in. And that's always scary to think about. You know, when I was in that side of the world, I went through that four times. And the first time was certainly the hardest by far. What was the hardest part about the change and what was ultimately the best part about it? Well, the hardest part is always keeping the trust of your clients, right? You've been telling your clients about how presumably good you are and how good the firm is that you're with and the recommendations that you and that firm are making. And then you have to almost uh, reapproach that trust by saying, hey, you know what? It's, it's time for us to go to another firm. And, and that's not easy. That's not an easy sale or presentation. So I think that was the hardest part was hopefully them trusting in me that what I was doing was the best for them. Because as you know, Tommy, in this business, everything we do has to be what's right and best for our clients. Absolutely. I learned going through that transition four times, Sean, I think the first time I made it more about what I was leaving that I didn't like. And what I learned was instead of being against something to be for something. And so the next three, it was very much talking with the clients about, this is what I'm excited about for the future. These are the things that I'm going to be able to deliver in a way that I currently cannot. And that was a far better way to approach it, I learned, was just not to be against something, but ultimately to be for something. You know, I coach advisors on that a lot. A lot of them will call me when they're thinking about leaving their firm or their wirehouse, whatever it may be. And one of the first things I try to identify, are they running away from something or are they running to something? And if they're not running to something, I always caution them to slow down and figure out what they're running to, because if they're just running away, a lot of times they end up running to something just as bad. So it's, you know, that gets us nowhere, but you've certainly seen a lot more of that activity than I have. In fact, you were one of the earliest breakaway brokers that left the wirehouse world and launched an independent firm. I mean, you're one of the original godfathers of that space. So tell me about that era and everything that was happening. I was just getting into the industry and you were starting to create a whole new channel in the industry. Yeah, well, I've been pretty good at vision and knowing where the puck's going in the Wayne Gretzky parlance. And I don't think it's that hard, right? If this is all we live and breathe and do every day, we really should be very insightful and we should know where things are going. That's what our clients count on us for, by the way. And, you know, I made the change, as you mentioned, from the big wirehouses to an independent broker dealer. And it was interesting because uh, to find an independent broker dealer, I was in New Jersey. I went all the way out to San Diego to find the one that I liked. And then from there, in the late 90s, early 2000, I wound up forming my own RIA. Wow, that was Early. It was early. And what was even earlier was when I was at Payne Weber in 86, they put me on the cover of the Payne Weber registered rep internal magazine. Basically, this advisor says the world is going fee based one day. That was in 1986 because I had started to go fee based 
back in the you know mid late eighties, and you know, I was kind of right. <laughs> you were just early. Yeah, you were yeah. just early. Wow, that was really early, Sean. I'm I'm going through my mental Rolodex. I don't know that I know of anyone else that was moving to the fee based world back in '86. I know some late 80s, but you might be the earliest that I've found yet. So we're going to give you that title for now. And, you know, if I find somebody earlier than that, I'd love to have you on my show here. So listeners, feel free to send them our way. And listeners, also, you've heard me talk about this before, if you've tuned into other episodes, that we really believe in the RIA. This is, you know, stands for Registered Investment Advisor. That doesn't mean a lot to you listening in, but it's really the side of the industry that legally has to be a fiduciary and do what's right for the client first and foremost. Whereas the broker doesn't mean that's a bad thing, but the broker ultimately their job is to help you get with a product that's good for you. That's kind of the main difference. If you know me, you know I'm a huge advocate for the RAA space. And what you're hearing is Sean is one of the original advocates of moving into that side of the world. Sometimes when people hear the word fee, they think that's a bad thing. But when Sean's talking about it, he's saying he was early in moving away from these hidden commissions that were just a drag on performance. They hurt your investment results. You just didn't really know how because it was all kind of buried to this fee-based world where it's very transparent. And so in this case, a fee is actually a very good thing because you can see it, you know what it is. And most importantly, you know if you're getting value for it. And if you're getting value for it, you'll stay with your advisor. If you're not, you will find a new one. So pretty simple. So all that to say, Sean's just bringing world of experience to us today. So we're gonna push in on, on more of that. But Sean, pretty quickly after you launched this RIA, I mean, the whole world of investments changed. I mean, you launched in 99 and 2001 was right around the corner. Yeah, absolutely, Tommy. And I was fortunate in that as we got into 99 and 2000, I got very concerned about market valuations. It was known as the dot-com era back then. Uh, Things like pets.com were worth uh, probably $25 billion. And so at that time, I had developed some tactical investment strategies back in 99, 2000, in and around the time we formed our RIA. And the reason I did was that uh, the markets looked very, very pricey at that time. And uh, so we developed our tactical strategies to try and navigate our clients out of risky, high price markets and into more conservative investments and, and even into cash. And that's what we did. And we we were very fortunate to have developed those strategies at that time, because as we all know, during the dot-com crash, equities fell about 50%. And then, of course, in the ensuing Great Recession in 06, 07, 08, 09, equities did the same thing. So our tactical strategies really paid off wonderfully. So I, you know, it's always good in business to be insightful, have vision, but have a little luck, too. So our tactical strategies served our clients very, very well. They delivered on um, the promise of trying to reduce downside and participate in the upside. And so that was something that was a big change. I talked about change early in our conversation, Tommy, and how you need to embrace it. And that was another change for me was, you know, on Wall Street, we've always 
been taught to buy and hold and to hang in there through thick and thin, et cetera. And by the way, I am a very, very big proponent of that. But one of the problems with that is the psychology of investing, where clients sometimes can't take the drops and then they sell at the bottom. So there are some clients that need tactical strategies to at least mentally in their mind relieve themselves of the stress and pressure so that they don't hit the sell everything button at the wrong time. Absolutely. One of the things that we find from behavioral economics is that the pain of loss in our investments is twice as heavy as the pain of missing an upside opportunity. And a lot of times when people think about investments or they read about a strategy, it's kind of assuming this economic agent that makes completely rational, logical decisions 100% of the time. And yet Sean and I have never met an investor that that's how they operate. It doesn't happen. Absolutely. So there's a whole art of planning around behavioral psychology and making sure that that's part of what you take into account as you're designing portfolios or as you're constructing investment strategies, that they're going to be durable when people go through these storms. Sean, have you ever had someone call, I ask people this a lot, have you ever had someone call and say, Sean, I'm really, really frustrated. Our portfolio is up way more than we expect it to be. That call I'm still waiting for. Yeah. It hasn't happened to me either, but certainly we know that's how the market also works on the downside. Sometimes it goes beyond the norms and that's just a much harder thing for people to stomach, for investors to stomach. So Sean, you had developed these strategies really just to protect your clients and your firm, but then very quickly, advisors just started beating down your door saying, we need help with this. We want to be able to provide this for our clients as well. What was that like? Well, it was interesting because I knew a lot of advisors in the business and in meeting with them at conferences or just talking to them on the phone, they were asking me, you know, how'd you do with your clients in the dot-com meltdown, the dot-com correction? And I said, quite good, actually. And the reason why is our tactical strategies exited the markets at pretty high levels. And then in March of 03, once we saw bottoms were being put in, we re-entered. And so that was the beginning of our wholesale business. Up until that point in my career, I was a retail advisor. I only had my direct book to clients. But other advisors came to me and were asking me, Sean, would you manage money for me and my clients? And when I first heard it, it was a little weird. Like, why do you want me to manage your clients' money? But then it dawned on me, well, wait a second. Isn't that what BlackRock and Vanguard and everyone else in the world does? So, heck, if they can do it, I should be able to do it. And the rest is sort of history. That was the beginning of what turned into the Hanlon Managed Accounts platform, where other advisors refer their clients to us. We manage the portfolio. We service the portfolio. But of course, the advisor remains the key relationship manager, financial planning, and everything else for that client. So Sean, let me ask this. Talk to the market timing naysayers for a moment. I know there's plenty out there that say, yeah, it's maybe it was luck, not skill. How do you address that? You know what, Tommy? I don't fight them too much only because market timing, like any other investment strategy, has its good times and its bad times, right? 
I mean, here we are in 2022, and now value's kicking in again, finally. Value's been asleep for 10 years. Emerging markets, they've been asleep for 15 years, right? And prior to that, the S&P 500 went through a lost decade where your money in the S&P, if you had invested in 2001 till 2011, you haven't gained a penny of value. That's exactly right, Tommy. And so- you know, there's a naysayer for every investment strategy out there. You just got to give all investment strategies the proper amount of time. And I think this is very important, what I'm about to do. And that is, I'll tell you about the good times in tactical, and I'll also tell you about the bad times in tactical. And that's why we at Hanlon do not only recommend tactical investing. It's how we started Because again, back to my roots, I developed some tactical strategies. I use them on a portion of my clients' accounts, a very large portion, because I just had the instincts that the dot-com, the NASDAQ, everything, that it was going to correct and maybe crash, and it did. But we use the tactical strategies, but we also tell people you should always, the only free lunch on Wall Street, and Tommy, you and I know this very well, and I'm sure many of your listeners do is diversification. And so tactical strategies and the naysayers who are against tactical strategies, it's just one portion of the diversified portfolio that you deliver to a client. Some clients need a little bit more because they need a little bit more conservative posture to be able to say, okay, 10%, 20%, 30% of my portfolio is in cash right now. I feel good about that. And other clients need none of it. So, and you know, like we said, it's a strategy, it's a type of investment approach. So is value stocks, so are emerging markets, so are international stocks, so is the S&P. And for some people, it's very, very valuable. I can tell you, I have clients that I don't know if they would remain a client if I didn't have some of their portfolio Mm. in cash. And we've been heavy cash this year, Tommy, for about four or five months now. We went to cash in January. Our models are down maybe 5% year to date, and we're looking great. And this is a year where tactical is just screaming good because unfortunately this year, the yin and the yang of stocks and bonds, they all yinged at the same time, meaning- Stocks and bonds went down, not like in the dot-com crash where bonds ultimately preserved the 60-40 portfolio, you know, the portfolio that has 40% fixed income and a typical balance, for example. And the same thing back in the Great Recession, you know, 07, 08, 09, bonds actually did very, very well for people back then. And it gave that ballast, if you will, in the portfolio. Not so this year. So tactical is working right. out real, really well this year. So the naysayers on tactical this year, they're really hiding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Sean, you're not trying to hit the highest high and sell then and then rebuy at the absolute lowest low. It's more about a broader structure. That's right. That's exactly right, Tommy. It's really about trying to get the trend correct right? There's an old expression that's been around over a hundred years on Wall Street. The trend is your friend. So we're trying to get the trend right. And every now and then that trend is rather severe in one direction or the other. And that's where tactical investment management really pays off. But again, always talk about the good and the not so good in all investment strategies. At times you can get whipsawed 
with tactical where you think a new trend is starting only to see it reverse against you. So that's why, you know, like all investment strategies, well, why doesn't everybody do it if it's so good? Well, it's good at times and maybe not so good at other times. But this year, clearly, with all markets globally down, all equity and even fixed income markets down, it's been a good year to be in uh, tactical strategies. Sean, one last thing I'd love to just pressure test. You know, I constantly saw studies from some of the index proponents, early ETF proponents, and they would talk about if you missed just the one or two best days in the market every year, that you would give up something like 60% of your growth. I mean, it is a massive number. So when you're trying to do the trend following, how do you not only make sure you're out into cash at the right time, but also that you're not sitting on that cash too long and then missing those one-day spikes that really deliver a, a bulk of the overall returns. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Tommy. The missing of the 10 best days, the 20 best days, the 30 best days over a 5, 10, 15, 20-year period, it's amazing what it means. But the problem is that they never show you the data that if you miss the 10 worst days, the 20 worst days, the 30 worst days, your returns go through the roof. And quite frankly, protecting downside is actually more important. It's not only more important, Tommy, because of what you referred to, which was you know behavioral finance slash psychology of investing, but it's also incredibly important because of mathematics. What do I mean? If you lose 50% in a portfolio, now you have to make 100% to get back to where you were, right? It isn't fair. Absolutely. If you lose 10%, you got to make 11% to get back. So it seems like it's not fair, but that's the way compounding works, both on the upside and on the downside. So it's really important to preserve as much as you can on the downside and our tactical strategies, you know, have been able to do that for clients. That's fantastic. So Sean, for the Hanlon Managed Accounts platform, you know, I'll call it HMAP. For HMAP, who are the right advisors that ought to be thinking about something like that? Well, in this day and age, Tommy, advisors are being called upon to do so much more than when I started <laughs> cold calling back at Merrill Lynch. They're being called upon to talk about financial planning. That's so critical these days. And then financial planning, of course, involves social security optimization. It involves talking about Medicare. It involves retirement planning. It involves education planning. It involves estate planning. It involves risk analysis. What does your risk situation look like? Your insurances. I can go on and on, right? Tax planning, asset protection, that's right. On and on. It goes on and on. That's very different than someone just calling someone saying, hey, you should buy this stock. No doubt about it. Or just somebody calling and pushing an annuity or pushing a particular single mutual fund or something like that. And those services are not very good services anyway, because you know you don't want to go to a doctor who only recommends that you know you get a cardiogram and that's it right? That's all that doctor sells. No, you want a true review and analysis of your situation to get the proper recommendation. And you want that not today, tomorrow, next month. How about for your lifetime? Because that's what we all are. We're all lifetime investors. There's no short-term investors out there. 
we're all lifetime investors with different goals. Some of our goals could be shorter term. Some of our goals could be longer term. And so how can an advisor be called upon to do all those things that we just talked about and manage portfolios every day, trade the portfolios, rebalance the portfolios, create cash to meet service requests, i.e. check disbursements, on and on and on. It's so hard. It is really, really hard. And so you outsource to a firm like Hanlon Investment Management using our HMAP, as you properly called it, our Hanlon Managed Accounts Platform. And we do all that for the advisors. We show the advisors an extraordinary inventory of managers, strategic, dynamic, and tactical. We started in the tactical space, but we, even Hanlon, has expanded to having strategic models and dynamic models. And we have other great big brand names, you know, BlackRock, Vanguard, Russell, Wilshire, et cetera, on our platform. And we can help them put together proposals. We can help advisors onboard client accounts, transition them to the models, and then from there, leave the driving to us and we keep them very informed. So that's the type of advisor. And to me, that's really all advisors today. Now, some advisors may get large enough where maybe they have an in-house research and in-house portfolio management team. And fine, if that's the case, good. But you better have billions under management these days to be able to support that type of infrastructure. So Sean, do you take care of things like rebalancing the portfolio? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. We use a what we call our out of tolerance, a dynamic out of tolerance. We, we're not fans of what we call, and I apologize if this offends anybody, any of your listeners, but dumb rebalancing, which is let's rebalance at the quarter. Yeah, an arbitrary date. Yeah, an arbitrary date. I mean, you know, the market could have fallen 30%. Look at COVID, you know, market fell 30%. And then by June 30th, it had recovered probably 20% of that. You missed an incredible rebalancing opportunity there. So we use dynamic rebalancing, which is we study, we have the technology and the personnel to look at every account every day and see if we're breaching any rebalance thresholds. That's fantastic. Listeners, that is the way to go when we're trying to do rebalancing is what you're trying to do is ultimately you want to sell high and buy low. And that's the right way to invest. But when you're in the heat of it, it's not intuitive. And that's one of those behavioral problems. We don't want to go sell what's already up. It's doing really well. Shouldn't I keep that to go sell and buy what's not doing as well? It just feels counterintuitive, but it is the right fundamental way to invest when you're thinking about rebalancing, not some arbitrary date once a quarter, once a year. I saw a study once. It said, if you just rebalanced every presidential year, you'd be just as well off as if you rebalanced every quarter, that it just didn't matter. You could go four years and you'd get the same results as quarterly. Sean, do you also do billing? We do. We do all of the billing for our advisors and clients. We also produce all of the quarterly statements, very well-informed quarterly statements. We'll also provide a commentary about what's going on in the different markets, uh, domestic, international, equity, fixed income, commodities, et cetera. And you know, we provide online access as well with our platform to client accounts. And I'm going to get more technical for a moment. Do you also do any 
strategic tax allocation, if a client has multiple accounts where you're thinking about those multiple accounts from a strategic tax standpoint? Yeah, we absolutely do. We will look at the type of account it is. And obviously, if it's a taxable account, well, we want to keep our taxable activity at a minimum. And if it's a tax deferred account, that's where you would tend to have, for example, your tactical strategies for that household, because tactical strategies are typically not tax efficient, uh, because typically they may be incurring gains on less than a 12-month basis, and therefore you experience short-term capital gains, which is a higher tax rate than long-term capital gains. So we do bring that. And also, Tommy, we're rolling out really literally as we speak right now, our new direct indexing models on our platform. And those direct indexing models are just going to do a phenomenal job for addressing taxes in that. And we're big fans of index investing. And we've always used tactical solutions populated with indices. So index investing is something we're very, very familiar with. But we're going to start to do direct indexing. And with direct indexing, we can do tax loss harvesting, which is a great way to add you know, studies have shown anywhere from 50 to 150 basis points, basically a half a percent to one and a half percent of net after tax return for our clients. So taxes is another massive area that we focus on with our managed accounts platform. And listeners, what Sean is talking about is just so absolutely critical for a retail investor. What I mean by that, just an individual investor. A lot of times we don't realize it. People are starting to be more conscious about their fees and things of that nature. They're still trying to figure out how to be more conscious about their taxes and the impact that plays on their results, but not paying attention to the things that Sean is talking about. Things like rebalancing the portfolio, things like managing for fees with indexes, things like being sensitive to tax efficiency and multiple areas and layers. These things can attribute to often can be over half of the ultimate performance of your investment. So think of it as there's about half of your performance that's just based on are these companies actually growing? And then the other potential half is are we paying attention to these other opportunities that aren't quite as intuitive. And, you know, advisors out there, if you don't have someone helping with this, as Sean said, you know, I've seen lots and lots of RIAs. I've helped grow some nationwide RIAs. It is exceedingly difficult these days to try to scale that if you're trying to do everything under the hood at your firm. So to have a partner like Hanlon Investment Management in your corner to just take care of these things for you is just such a better way to go. I'm just 100% convinced that is a way to scale a firm these days, not to try to do everything in-house. Sean, let's talk a little bit more about direct indexing, and then we're going to move to my favorite part of the show. So when you talk direct indexing, just give our listeners, and some of our listeners have never heard that term before. So tell them real high level, what does that even mean? Sure. So direct indexing, the the most important word in it is indexing. It's index investing, right? And index investing is where a entity, an index provider out there like S&P or Dow Jones or NASDAQ has a rules-based method for building a portfolio of stocks that 
create the index and slash your portfolio. For, so, for example, the S&P 500 is 500 stocks typically, and it's market cap weighted. So the largest holding in the S&P 500 is Apple. It's the biggest company, biggest public company in the world, although Aramco with uh, the price of oil has started to give it a bit of a challenge recently. But anyway, here in the US, Apple is the largest company in the S&P, so it'll represent something like two or 3%. And then you may have really tiny companies that represent a fraction of a percent. So it's market cap weighted, it's an index, you buy a pool of stocks. Well, direct indexing on the S&P 500 is where you're not buying an ETF or a mutual fund that buys those stocks you're actually buying those stocks individually. And what we do is we use very, very sophisticated optimizers so that we don't have to buy all 500 stocks. We can replicate the return of the S&P 500 by buying about 100 of the stocks in the S&P 500. So it's a wonderful way to get the return and the the rules-based return of that market cap-weighted index, the S&P 500, but get the phenomenal customization that you don't get when you buy an ETF or a mutual fund. We can do tax loss harvesting. So when oil was getting crushed and beat up and the oil stocks were down, we could have sold Exxon and bought Chevron, realized they lost there, which we can turn into a tax shelter, if you will, a tax offset against your gains down the road. And now these days, maybe you could take some of your Amazon, which at one time was down, you know, 33, 35% from 3,300 to 2,000. And you could have swapped that for Microsoft or some other tech stop for 30 days to avoid the wash sale rule and then bought back in. And so you're constantly creating tax shelters and everybody loves legal tax shelters. It's one of the greatest things on Wall Street. So with direct indexing, you're trying to replicate the return of the index. You're doing it with fewer stocks. You're buying the stocks individually, and it avails the opportunity for tax loss harvesting, for also tax transition. Say you have a big account with large gains. You don't want to transition at all immediately because incurring those gains will be incurring giant taxes. So instead, we can transition it to the index over a couple of years and generate tax losses with the index that we've invested in to shelter and more quickly move the assets out of the low cost basis assets into what we want them in. So there's a number of benefits. We're index fans. If you want to buy an index with an ETF or a mutual fund, right on to that. But through Hanlon and our direct indexing portfolios and technology, we can give you sort of index plus meaning yeah. we can give you customization that's going to lower your tax bracket. It's going to make your transition from wherever you are to handling less tax onerous. And we're going to be able to personalize it to what your values are, should you want to elect to do that. Well, this is fantastic. And Sean, we're going to move into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question that everybody wants to know. And what that really means is it's the question I want to know. And then the second is the actual question that everybody wants to know. So Sean, for the question that I want to ask today, one of the things I was wondering about direct indexing, you know, for years and years, there have been investors that have come to me and I've had these thoughts personally, 
there are certain companies I would prefer not to invest in. You know, whether it's my family values or for some people, maybe it's their religious beliefs or just their passion for the future. And there just hasn't been a great way to participate in normal index investing, but also be able to not invest in the things that go against my values or my beliefs or my passions. With direct indexing, is it possible to exclude certain stocks if they violate my values? Absolutely, Tommy. That's one of the pillars of direct indexing, right? Uh, In direct indexing, you have the tax benefits that are either ongoing or tax benefits to help you with your transition into the index. But then you have the ESG, environmental, social, and governance overlays. And with those overlays, we can offer one of two types. We can either offer a broad overlay where we reach out and we use services that rank each company's that provide a ranking to each company for their ESG policies, or we can get very specific. And we have over 20 different categories for you to select from, or we could just exclude any company in the universe or any companies in the universe. And when I say universe, I mean in the index we're trying to replicate that you want. So it really doesn't get any more custom than with that direct indexing solution. So it's it's very, very personalized and customizable. And, you know, Tommy, that's really where this investment industry is headed is personalization like we've never seen because of technology, right? I should be able to profile you, your family, put together a very, very personal and direct financial plan for you. And then we should talk about other things like your values, like your goals, and see if we can introduce that into your portfolio. And we can today. That's incredible. Yeah, very personal. You know, it's the Netflix personalization. It's the Apple personalization. And now we have it in the financial services world. It's long been one of my biggest frustrations of our industry is that if we had somebody that just had a fundamental value that they didn't want to invest in things. If we were using normal index funds or normal ETFs, there just wasn't a great way to exclude those things. So we just kind of chalked it up to, well, it's hard to get around those things. But I always thought that was a bad answer. So it's very exciting for me to hear this is a way that people are able to actually incorporate their values into their investment life the way that they should be. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic. And let's be clear, Tommy, because your listeners may be asking, well, why didn't I get this sooner? Well, let's remind all of us that commission-free trading started about a year or two. And unfortunately, Tommy Martin and Sean Hanlon weren't controlling that. If we were, we would have had that commission-free trading two decades ago. But the powers to be, you know, the big four custodians and then the big wirehouses, they all went to commission-free trading in the last two years. And you need commission-free trading to go buy 150 stocks for a client versus buying one ETF. Absolutely. Well, Sean, thank you for being a pioneer for so much in the industry, all the way back into moving into the independent RIA space doing fee-based advising where we're putting the client transparency front and center, and then moving into this world where people can actually incorporate their values into their portfolios and not just doing it for your own firm. But the part I appreciate the most, Sean, 
you figured out how to also do this for other firms. And that's the lasting legacy that we're so appreciative of in the industry. And that's a great segue into my final question, which is, I'm sure we have some listeners out there today that are saying, Either they're a retail investor and they, you know they have their own accounts and they're saying, wow, my advisor is not paying attention to these things for me. And they want to reach out and get in touch with you at Hanlon Investment Management. Or maybe there's some advisors out there listening and they've heard about the Hanlon Managed Assets platform about HMAP today. And they're interested in being able to outsource and scale their firm better what is the best way for those people to get in touch with you? Yeah, real easy. Hanlon.com is our website. And on the very top of the website is our toll-free number, uh, 888-641-7100, as well as our uh, email to send us an inquiry at uh, salesinfo at Hanlon.com. They're both right on the, uh, on the top of the website. So we'd be welcoming to hear from any direct investor and any wholesale advisor, any advisor who, who brings us investors. And we run two channels. You know, we're kind of a bit of a unique firm in that we run our direct to client channel and we run our wholesale channel. But at the end of the day, both channels are servicing, I'll call it the same clients. They're people out there that have needs that don't understand as much as they should to invest properly and that need help. And so some of them come to us directly, some of them come to us through their advisor. So that's the best way for them to contact us, Tommy. I appreciate you bringing that up. That's fantastic. And listeners, that's hanlon.com, H-A-N-L-O-N.com. And we will put that in our show notes, whether you listen on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And listeners, we just want to, again, say thank you to you. You are so wonderful. You've made the show far better than I ever imagined. And we really appreciate it. And so if you've enjoyed the show, please make sure you hit the five-star review button. That helps others find our show. Sean, thank you again for being with us today. And listeners, thanks for being here. We'll see you again next week right here at Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.